I've told lots of stories um, about my uh, church experience when I was growing up, and some of them sound kind of like I'm mocking, and um, I understand why you would think that, because I kind of have that tone sometimes. But uh, I learned a lot at the church I was growing up in, and uh, um, there, were, uh, there was one thing I liked a lot. Um, when, when I was a kid, we used to go for about three hours, and we'd go to Sunday school. The adults would go to their Sunday school, and the kids would go to their Sunday school, and then if we played our cards right after the uh, Sunday school, we'd have a little break, maybe even time enough to go across the street to the convenience store and get some candy. And then church started promptly at 11 and finished at 12, not always promptly. And um, we had a, a one-hour service. And you've heard me describe before, like the invitation ordeal, where we'd sing the song over and over again. And uh, um, just one more verse unless somebody comes, and then I'd be, I was a rotten kid, I'd be in the back praying that nobody would come because I was hungry and I wanted to go watch football and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was my experience. But here's the, there's this one thing we used to do in Sunday school that I liked a lot. We'd, during the assembly time, we'd fill out this little checklist, and it was kind of a checklist for how good we were doing at the churchy stuff. It had uh, bringing your Bible with you, you know, brought Bible and you check off that you had your Bible with you at Sunday school. Read your Bible daily was a check off thing. Uh, prayed daily was a check off. Um, and for a legalistic kid like me, this was perfect. You know, I, I could see how I was doing every, you know, every week, measure my progress. And uh, they actually scored points. And I don't know, I can't remember this part of it, but I'm sure there was some kind of contest where the overachieving show-offs would win a prize for, for getting the most points. And I sure would, I would have gone for the prize and tried to work the system. And my favorite part, um, you know, this was an evangelistic church, and so I'm sure their favorite part of that little check-off sheet also became my favorite part. It was the contacts. And you could earn contacts by one or two ways. If there was somebody who was already part of your church, if you just kind of spoke to them during the week, that counted. Or if it was somebody who wasn't part of the church that you invited to church, that counted. And the cool thing about contacts is every other place was just checkoff, but you could write a number in there because you could make more than one. And I, I soon figured out that you know, even if I didn't read my Bible or pray, I could really rack up points with the contacts. Like I'd mentioned to my, my, my Little League team that there was something going on at Bible school or something. There's 14 right there. And so I was working the system racking up the points and uh, you know we, we make the joke about Jesus points here we didn't use that phrase back then but it was much the same concept and so I was you know I was I figured out the system I found a way to, to, to score well every week and and you know most of those things all of those things are good things I'm for inviting people to church I'm for reading your Bible I think praying is a wonderful thing I think oh giving was on there I think that's good I think bringing your Bible to church is cool I think there there's nothing wrong with anything on that list but the overall program was flawed because it was all external. And it was quite possible, as my own life showed, to rack up points week after week after week without any inner transformation going on inside. And that was, you know, that's my story. And that's, um, and that's the problem with focusing on external behavior as, as the, the measure of spirituality, as the measure of discipleship. So I mentioned already, we finished a series on Esther, and it's time to start a new series. And I like going series by series for a few reasons. One is, I think it's kind of an entrance ramp into our church. Uh, I think for, for you who are regulars here, I encourage you to take a bulletin home and, and 
leave it on your desk. This is a good time to invite people because we're starting a new series. And in fact, today I'm only going to introduce it. So people who aren't here today won't have missed much. The, the next 12 weeks are going to be um, all based on this book. Uh, it's called uh, Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth, and it's by Richard Foster. And of course, this is all you know, based on scriptural standards. Um, I know there, there are some people, actually, there are people in this room who recommended this book to me. Uh, so I, I know there's some who've read it already. Ra raise your hand if you've already read it. Okay. The one who, in, who re recommended it to me. Uh, there was one in the first service, too. Um, and feel free to get your own copy and, and read along if you'd like. Uh, I got mine uh, for about 10 bucks on Amazon, I think, or half.com. Um, or feel free not to. Um, you will definitely get the meatiest chunks out of the book just by showing up the next 12 weeks. Because uh, this was recommended to me from a few different sources. And at first I heard the title and I thought, Celebration of Discipline. Uh, uh, Ann said this. She heard about it in college. It sounded like a big guilt, guilt trip to her. And that's what I thought. It's like a you know, masochistic guilt trip. I'm going to find out all the ways I don't measure up. Uh, so I'm thinking, I don't, I don't think I want that. But then... I heard about it from Dave, and two other people recommended it to me in just a few months. And, and when that happens, I think, all right, God, is this you? Are you trying to direct me to something? And so I got, a, got my hands on a copy, and I looked at the table of contents, and the bells kind of went off in my head because the table of contents looked like a sermon series to me. Twelve chapters, twelve classic spiritual disciplines you know, for transforming our inner lives. And I thought... There's some things here that I, I'm familiar with, and I remember how life-changing it was for me when I grasped them. And there are also some things here that I'm not good at at all, and I need to learn, I need to learn how to do these things. And so uh, I am a student with you in this course. I intend to let Richard Foster teach me from Scripture over the next three months, and I invite you to join me. Uh, let's, let's, let's learn it together. Uh, I've used the metaphor of spiritual fitness because that's something that 30 years later, it's a 30-year-old book, we're a little more into today. Uh, discipline sounds like punishment to us, but it's not. The actual definition of discipline is a field of study. When you go to college, you, you, you study, you, know, you pick your major, and you might focus on or narrow in on a particular discipline. Or I would encourage you to, to picture the circuit training at the gym, where you have a few different machines, and you develop, you, know, you work on different muscles with different machines. These classical spiritual disciplines, they're, they're, they're practices that Jesus practiced and, and connect the Christian faith over the centuries, and yet they're available to us today and widely not practiced in 21st century American society or American culture just naturally. Uh, and so there, there are 12 of them in three categories. There are the internal ones, the external ones, and the community corporate ones. And so we'll spend about a month on each, exactly a month on each, four weeks, four weeks, four weeks. And that's what we're going to go with. Um, I'm not an expert, but I want to I get better at this. And so uh, the ones I feel like I'm good at, I want to get better at those. And there's some I feel like I've I'm, I'm, got a long way to go. And so uh, we'll go together. Richard Foster said early on in the introduction that superficiality is the curse of our age. Now, he wrote those words 30 years ago, but it's no less true today. You know, we live in a surface, superficial culture and, uh, where, where depth is sadly lacking. And I want to be deeper, but how do you do that? Donald Coggins says, I go through life as a transient on his way to eternity, made in the image of God, but with that image debased, needing to be taught how to meditate, to worship, to think. Psalm 42 
starts off this way. David writes, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Now, when I read that scripture, frankly, the first thing, the first thought that comes to my head is David good, Kurt bad. Because that's not me. My soul thirsts for God. And when I'm honest with myself, I mean, I know I want to. I, I know that, that that's, that's my highest pursuit. But how easy is it to get distracted and to get, you know, I, I'm thirsty for coffee. I'm thirsty for Seinfeld reruns. I'm so, for, thirsty for, for so many silly, superficial, surface things that don't change my heart, that don't, that don't transform my life. And, and yet I believe there's a way to get to here, even with, even with our, our, our self-absorbed society and even with our flesh that wars against us. Um, but we're beginners at this. Thomas Merton says we don't want to be beginners, but let us be convinced of the fact that we'll never be anything else but beginners all our lives. Now that sounds discouraging, but it's not. In the span of eternity, you know, we're going to spend our lives practicing these disciplines, some of them. And, and yet it's an opportunity, we have an opportunity to get a head start. Your eternal life in Christ doesn't begin after you die. It begins when you meet him. And so we've got the rest of our lives to practice these things. Psalm 42.7 says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Well, deep calls to deep, the Bible says. But in, in my experience, what I've seen is more shallow calling to shallow. Uh, not just in our society, but even in our church culture. Um, and, and this is a time, we've, we've undergone a little bit of a growth spurt here at church, uh, at Melbourne Community Church, and, and I, I expect it to continue. But this is a time to reflect and consider our roots. Because every builder knows it's your foundation that determines the strength of the structure. It's the, you know, we don't need more and bigger. We need deeper. And so for the people here in this room, for us to be prepared to handle the next stage of what God's got for us, we need to, to commit ourselves to putting our roots down deep and to put them into God and to, to, to deal with, you know, I, I, I want that depth of discipleship. I want that depth of experience, that intimacy with God that's, not, that's, that's, that's deeper than just surface level. So that's our goal, an intimate relationship with God. And that's available, and that's a gift from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like, like shifting shadows. We oftentimes think of sin as an individual act of disobedience to God. But it's not so much that as the condition, the common condition that plagues humanity. Uh, Paul wrote about this in Romans. Romans 3 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. I think, I think Paul had a better understanding of my heart than David did. Um, this sounds more like an accurate description. Um, and yet we know better. You know, we can assent with our minds that we want God. We can affirm the value for that. But, but we're, we all still live in flesh suits, and the default setting for our lives is just what Paul said. Romans 7, 5 says, When we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. So what we, what we have, and I think this is common to humanity, is these, these ingrained habits that are like slavery to us. 
And the spiritual disciplines, the things we're going to study over the next 12 weeks, are a means to break those bonds. Isaiah 57 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. Let's talk about that. Isaiah is making an analogy between wicked, which, which Paul just said, that's all of us, right? We're like a tossing sea. Now, what, what special activity does the sea have to do to stir up the mire and mud? Does the sea have to start a program to stir up mire and mud, to make a new commitment, make a resolution? No, the sea does what comes naturally, and mire and mud come up. So what do you and I have to do to stir up the mire and mud of sin? We just do what comes naturally. You know, we just, you know, babies are wonderful, and they're sweet, and they look adorable. But if you've had one recently, you know, they're pretty self-centered, aren't they? You know, it's all about me for a baby. Feed me, clothe me, change me. Um, they're not very considerate or thoughtful, you know, because our default setting is, is selfish, right? So how do we deal with our sinful habits? Quite often, I think we're tempted to do a frontal assault, to resolve, I will not do that, I will not be that way. I think many of you in this room know how ineffective that is. Uh, Heine Arnold says this in Freedom from Sinful Thoughts, we want to make it quite clear that we cannot free and purify our own heart by exercising our own will. Whatever the sin that plagues you, and it could, you just fill in the blank, it could be anger, fear, bitterness, gluttony, pride, lust, substance abuse, fill in the blank with the one that bugs you. When we resolve never again and pray and fight against that, we quite often lose that fight. Or even if you win that fight, often we, come, we become puffed up with pride at having won the victory, and now we slip on the other edge, uh, of, and, and we're really no closer to, to being spiritually appropriate. We replace the, that sin with the sin of pride. Col uh, Paul talks about it this way in Colossians 2. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What Paul says is that surface behavior not only doesn't change us inside, but we can make an idol of the performance rather than worshiping the true and living God. Emmett Fox says it this way, as soon as you resist mentally any undesirable or unwanted circumstance, you thereby endow it with more power, power which will, it will use against you, and you will have depleted your own resources to that exact extent. Now, many of you have battled with unwanted thoughts. How well does it work to say, I'm going to stop thinking about that thing? Um, that's, <laughs> it, it's, it's absurd how ineffective that is. Uh, Arnold finishes the same thought by saying this way, as, as long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will only make the evil in us stronger than ever. This same idea is confirmed in devotional writings all across the theological spectrum. John Calvin, John Wesley, um, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Augustine, Teresa of Avila, they all confirm this same idea. The more we fight on our own to beat this thing, the more power we give it, and it becomes this dragon in our lives that we can't slay. Jesus said in, actually, back up, willpower will work for a time, a very brief time, but ultimately the pressure of life will expose you. 
Jesus said in Matthew 12, For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Interaction with people will reveal what's inside. Even if your words don't betray you, your body language will. Willpower can't defend against the unguarded moment. It can't transform your inner spirit. Uh, we've seen this in my own family with the, uh, the body language. Um, I've told this story before. When, uh, when my dad would get really angry, he would, you could see it in his chin. His chin would do this kind of wrinkly thing, and you could tell, oh, boy, Dad is so mad. And one of the meanest things my wife ever said to me was about 10 years ago, we were having some kind of a dispute, and she said, hey, your chin looks just like your dad's um, when he gets angry. And uh, my little brother had a name for it, in fact. Todd called it a fripe. And uh, um, I don't know where he got that name, but we all knew what it was. You know, be, you know the uh, run for the hills, dad's given a fripe. And, uh, and so when Gina called me on that, I was horrified. I was appalled. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to live this life. I'm trying to be this nice guy, this good husband. And my chin betrays me. And so it's one of the reasons I keep the beard. I want to try to keep that thing hidden. And... And I renounced that. I've repented of that. And uh, I, I, as far as I know, it's been years since there's been a sighting. Um, and I intend to keep it that way. Cause, but what I learned to my horror was that I couldn't beat that thing down myself. Because when I was really angry inside, my chin would betray me, uh, even if I tried to say the right words. And so I need more than just resolution. I need, I need the Holy Spirit to change me. So this inner righteousness is a gift from God. And Paul uses this phrase, gift from God, 35 times in the book of Romans. And because it's a gift, we sometimes flip over to, into the other heresy that since there's nothing we can do to earn it, why bother doing anything? Since there's nothing we can do, maybe there's nothing we should do. And that's, that's a heresy. Let me give you a, 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 an analogy from Scripture. Galatians 6, 8 says, The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Reasons that this is a good analogy is the farmer prepares, and yet God's responsible for the harvest. And we can do things to prepare our lives, but ultimately God will reap the harvest, the fruit. Um, sometimes you know, we who come from an academic background will look at this list of, uh, uh, sp uh, of spiritual fruit in Galatians. We'll get to that in just a second. I think it's like a report card. Like, I got a C in self-control this month. I'm going to try to get a B next month and keep moving up. But that's not the way. Uh, we, we, that fruit is the Holy Spirit's work. In The Cost of Discipleship, a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he makes it plain that grace is free, but it's not cheap. Uh, picture, picture a path. The spiritual disciplines are a roadway, and there's a ditch on either side. And on one side, there's moralism, or we might call it legalism, or I'm going to perform my way into right relationship with God. That will never work. But on the other side, there's this, this heresy called antinomianism. And I don't mean to turn this into a theology class, but that's the idea that, well, because it's all a free gift from God, doesn't matter what I do, I just do what I feel like doing, and you know, it's up to God to do all the others. And in the middle, there's this path that I would call these spiritual disciplines, the ones we're going to work on the next 12 months. The 12 weeks, that they're not the stairway to heaven, they're the, they're the path to health, to spiritual health. I'm not talking about your eternal destiny, I'm talking about your life in the here and now. How strong are you to resist 
the temptations of Satan, your own flesh, the pressures of life. Well, these are, these are a path to spiritual healthiness, I believe. There are means we, where we can place ourselves where God can bless us. Galatians 5.22 lists the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, God does this. And when God does this, the cool thing is it's no longer necessary to hide your true self from others. Some of you know how exhausting that can be. I've got to perform and pretend and, and not show who, who I really am down deep. And I know that that can be exhausting. And yet when God transforms us from the inside out, we don't have to do that work anymore. Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what I want. That's the life I want, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now here's a warning, and I'm going to finish with the warning. These spiritual disciplines are intended for our good, but they will become the way to death if you turn them into laws to condemn yourselves or each other. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how can that be? The Pharisees were very well behaved, mostly. Their righteousness was nothing to sneeze at. They, They lived exemplary lives. How can your righteousness expect to exceed that? Well, here's why. Theirs was external. Theirs was surface. And ours is going to be internal. We're going to be transformed. When the spiritual disciplines become laws, then they're used to manipulate and control, and the result becomes pride and fear. Jesus, Jesus um, indicted the Pharisees with this phrase, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they remember they're not, but, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Yeah, I don't intend these spiritual disciplines to be burdens on your shoulders. I intend for them, I hope, my prayer is that they will be the pathway to life and health for us. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will guide us. We can trust his teachings, and we can trust the Holy Spirit will transform us if we ask for that. Everybody wants to change. You've been watching the political scene uh, at the conventions. They all talk about change. We're the ones that are going to change. Everybody wants to change. Um, And our world is desperate for change. But not quite some time ago, Leo Tolstoy wrote this about change. Everybody thinks of changing humanity, and no one thinks of changing himself. And I want to swim up that swim upstream against that tide. I want to be the guy who starts by changing himself. And that's my prayer for this congregation, that we will change our, we will, we will put ourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit can change us, and then we'll start knocking on the door of Melbourne and humanity. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, help us to do this. This is easy to talk about and, and harder to do. But Lord, we, we don't think you're, you're a cruel God or we don't believe that you, that you set a path before us just to taunt us because we can't reach it. But Lord, we believe that, that with your help, we can walk this path and we can practice these disciplines and we can become more spiritually fit. And Lord, I ask that you would show us the way. God, I ask that you would give us the grace to do that. And Lord, we'll give you the credit, we'll give you the glory, we'll give you the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.